first half of Ephesians tells us about our wealth. The last half tells us about our walk. And then Paul closes the book beginning in chapter 6 and verse 10 talking about spiritual warfare. Which tells me that if we're walking worthy of our calling in humility rather than pride, in unity rather than divisiveness, in the new self rather than the old, in love rather than lust, in light rather than darkness, in wisdom rather than foolishness, in the fullness of the spirit rather than the drunkenness of wine, in mutual submission rather than self-serving independence, if we are walking as Paul describes, then we can be absolutely certain that we will have opposition and conflict. Opposition is one of the evidences to me that I am accomplishing something for God. In fact, Paul promised it in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he said, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though some strange thing were happening to you. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And so when the opposition comes, don't be surprised. Don't fret or whine. Don't say, nobody has it as bad as me. Instead, we are to anticipate the enemy's attacks, and we're to be prepared to handle them. Twice in verses 10 to 13, Paul says we are to stand firm. Now, how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us two directives. The first is in verse 10. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If you ask me to stand firm against Mike Tyson, I'm going to need some help. Paul says, I want you to stand firm against the most formidable enemy there is, but you've got some help. Because I want you to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, the idea is not that we sit back in our easy chair and wait for the Lord to do something. This is an exhortation. We have to do something. We have to be strong in the Lord. It's kind of like when you go to the store and they've got those automatic doors that open up. You don't have to open those doors. You don't have to bust through those doors. But you do have to have the faith to walk up to them like you're going to bust through them. You see, it doesn't take any strength on your part, but it takes confidence in the strength of another. We have an enemy. When he comes to me like a roaring lion, threatening to devour me, I'm told to stand firm. Not in my strength, but I'm trusting in the strength of another. The battle belongs to the Lord, and the end is absolutely certain. The outcome is sure. And so, finally and ultimately, it's not really a struggle between me and the devil. It's a struggle between Christ and the devil. And I simply have to be strong in his strength. The second directive he gives us is in verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God. God has provided us with spiritual armor for this spiritual battle. But you see, just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean that I've got the armor on. He's speaking to Christians and he's exhorting us to put it on. See, there's no other way to handle the enemy. There's no other way to stand against his attacks. There is no other solution to the dilemma that we find ourselves in but to put on the armor of God. And if you'll notice, Paul says we are to put on the full 
armor. Satan is always looking for a chink in your armor. And if he finds it, he'll take advantage of it. That's why Paul said earlier in Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 27, do not give the devil an opportunity. That's all he needs. Achilles was the hero of Homer's Iliad, the hero of the Trojan Wars, but we remember him best as the fellow who had all his armor on, but had his heel exposed and was killed by an arrow to his vulnerable heel. If you've got a vulnerable spot, Satan will find it. And so as we look at each of the 12 pieces of armor again this morning in verses 14 to 17, I want you to examine your own self to make sure that you've got them all on. That you don't have an Achilles heel somewhere in your spiritual armor. Now we began to look at them last time. The first one is in verse 14, the belt of truth. Having girded your loins with truth, that is having everything tucked in and ready for war. To be committed, to be serious, to have a heart for battle. The second piece is the breastplate of righteousness at the end of verse 14. And that is that I have not only that imputed righteousness that God puts to my account, the righteousness of Christ, but that I have taken that positional righteousness and I'm making it a practical reality in my life. This is personal holiness. Third piece of armor is the shoes in verse 15. And he says, your shoes is your readiness to share the gospel of peace. When I share the gospel, it not only benefits other people, it benefits me because it is part of my armor. It's part of my defense. And then the fourth piece where we want to pick up this morning is the shield of faith in verse 16. He says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Now, the Roman soldier had two kinds of shields. One was a small, round shield, about two feet in diameter. That was the shield that he used as a very lightweight shield in hand-to-hand combat. The other shield was larger. It was about two and a half feet wide by about four and a half feet tall. And that's the shield that, that Paul is talking about here because he talks about the flaming missiles. Part of the tactic in warfare in that day was to take your arrows and dip them in tar and light them and then shoot them into the air and have them rain down on the enemy. And if you didn't have this shield to get behind, you were in big trouble in that situation. Now, what are the flaming arrows that Satan shoots? Well, they're temptations. He is constantly bombarding us with temptations to immorality, hatred, envy, anger, covetousness, pride, doubt, despair, difficulties. And Paul says we need the shield of faith. Now sometimes we think of faith as something we did one time when we accepted Christ. But faith is not a one-time act. It is a way of life. Habakkuk 2.4 says the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 says the just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11 says the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.39 says the just shall live by faith. Now, I think if God says something that many times, He's trying to get our attention. And what He's trying to tell us is that the just shall live by faith. Faith is a way of life for the Christian. And when temptations come, we need the shield of faith. Faith is simply believing God. A week ago Wednesday, we bought our fourth car for our family, and I thought we had things made. We got four drivers and four cars. This is the way it ought to be. 
before I could get the car home, one of our cars was involved in an accident. And since that time, I had a car, one car had the axle fall off, one had a muffler fall off, another had a burnt valve, and the fourth one had the shift lever moving, but it wasn't doing anything but staying in neutral. So I thought, you know, this is not a coincidence when you're preaching on the enemy that you would have problems like this. So I wasn't surprised on Friday when Tempest showed up and said, the car started sputtering and it died over on Independence. So well, that's fine. Let's go see what's wrong with it. So we go over there and, and uh, through some help of Rob Rustler, my mechanic, see here, uh, we called and they said, well, you need to check and see if you got diesel fuel in that car. So we went back to the service station because she had just put gas in it and she happened to pick the one pump that had a diesel lever, lever there and she had accidentally taken the diesel and put it into our car. Um, so the, the car had a little plug underneath on the bottom of the gas tank, kind of like the plug on the bottom of your oil uh, pan. And uh, so I rationalized, you know, I can't afford to be without this car. And I can't afford to call a shop because I already owe them my firstborn. <laughs> and I've got a wedding rehearsal in less than an hour. And so we didn't have any pan or anything. So I said, well, let's just take the plug out and we'll let it run on the road. Now, you know, I thought, you know, diesel fuel is not as flammable as gas. And, and uh, whenever I spill gas on my driveway, it, it evaporates pretty quickly. And, and it was kind of downhill from where our car was, and it was going to stay against the curb and wouldn't be a big problem. And so we did that and uh, drained the diesel fuel out and we put the plug back in and put some gas back in the car. You think this is worse than it's going to be. I put the gas back in the car. We got the car started and uh, just about to take off, and uh, the fire truck shows up with the sirens going, and the police showed up. And uh, what started out as a little trial, <laughs> I now am probably going to have to pay a ticket. They're going to check and see if I broke a federal crime. Uh, and I also probably have to pay the city for the cleanup of the spill according to the EPA regulations. Um, in retrospect, <laughs> I put up the shield of rationale and excuses rather than putting up the shield of faith. I should have said, God, I'm going to trust you and obey you even if it's inconvenient, even if I see a shortcut to get out of this trial, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to trust you and stay right here. You see, that's the shield of faith. And Paul says we need to take it up. Basically, it's simply believing God. Satan always wants to cause us to doubt God. That's what he did with Eve in the garden. He came and said, has God said? When he came to Jesus in the wilderness, he said... If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. In fact, if you analyze the temptation that came on Jesus in the wilderness, it was all about distrusting God. He first of all wanted him to distrust God's provision. 
He said, God's not going to provide for you. You better turn these stones into bread. Secondly, he addressed the idea of distrusting God's protection. He said, you can throw yourself off the temple. God said he'd have his angels catch you. Third, he tried to cause him to distrust God's plan. He said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship me. And Satan still has that same strategy today. And whenever I sin, what I'm really saying is, God, you're wrong. I'm believing Satan. And Paul says, we need the shield of faith. Which is simply saying, God, I'm going to believe you. And I talk to people all the time that are wrestling with this. I talk to, to sometimes to girls and they want to get married and I'll say, well, is he a Christian? They'll say, well, no, he's not a Christian. But I'm praying for him and God's going to work it all out. And see, what is that? That's disbelieving God because God has made his will very clear in his word. You know what Satan's favorite target is with his flaming darts? Your mind. And let me show you a passage, if you've never marked it, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's really a parallel passage to this one in Ephesians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 3. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're not fighting a physical battle, we're fighting a spiritual battle. And Paul says in that spiritual battle, we have the kind of weapons that can tear down fortresses. You say, well, what are the fortresses? He tells us in verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. What are those fortresses? They are ideas, they are concepts that are foreign to and opposed to the knowledge of God. How do we do it? In the verse 5, he says, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every sin you commit begins in your mind. Sometimes we say, well, I acted thoughtlessly. That's impossible. Because every time you act, you act on the basis of a thought. When somebody comes to me and says they're struggling with a certain sin, my first question to them is, what kind of movies do you watch? What kind of music do you listen to? What kind of subjects do you talk about with your friends? What are you filling your mind with? Because whatever I fill up my mind with will eventually bear fruit in the actions of my life. And Satan is constantly bombarding our mind with temptations. Some of you are sitting here today and you've got so many flaming darts sticking in your mind that you can't even concentrate on me. See, the battle is won or lost in the mind. That's why Paul said in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. When a thought comes, I can't stop that thought. But I do choose what I do with that thought. I choose whether to pamper it, spend time with it, let it develop. If so, it's going to eventually come out in my action. Paul says what we need to do is take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Thought comes, I capture it. And I take it in obedience to Christ. 
We, we sit down to watch a movie sometimes and the, they come on ahead of the movie and they say, this movie contains garbage. It is spiritually hazardous to you. And we say, get the popcorn. You know, we're going to watch this one. What am I doing? I'm filling my mind with that garbage which will eventually affect my life. Paul says if we want to get serious about the battle, the real battle is taking place in our mind. And when that thought first comes, I need to capture that and take it in obedience to Christ. That's synonymous with with what he's saying in Ephesians chapter 6. We need the shield of faith to believe God rather than the lies of Satan. Satan's most common lie is, I'll make you happy. You do this, you do that, you do it my way, I'll make you happy. Now, he can do that temporarily. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the passing pleasures of sin. Do you want to know the real truth? Jesus spoke it in Luke chapter 11 and verse 28 when he said, Happy are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You want to be happy? Listen to God's word and obey it and you will experience true happiness that God provides. Well, the fifth piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. It's mentioned in the first part of verse 17. They had a little dagger that they used in combat. They also had broad swords that they would take, these huge swords. They'd take them like a baseball bat, and they'd go around trying to develop split personalities. And to defend against the broadsword, they had a helmet that came up and had kind of a rooster comb on top, and it was designed to deflect the blow of a broadsword. And he says here that your helmet is the helmet of salvation. Now, he's not talking about getting saved here. He's not saying uh, you're in the battle and committed, you got the breastplate and the shoes and the shield, now get saved. No, what he's talking here about is our security in our salvation. One of Satan's greatest ploys is to get Christians to doubt whether they're really saved or not. Because if he can get you to that point, then you're not going to be any good to anybody else. You're not going to be any good in the conflict because you're going to spend all your time worrying about yourself. I've got a whitewater canoe canoe in my basement and it's just kind of gaining cobwebs right now, but it reminds me that uh, I used to be a whitewater canoeer. And one of the rivers that I used to go on was the Ocoee, which they uh, just had the uh, Olympic competition on. And at the end of the Ocoee River, there's a, there's a rapid, the last rapid, and it's, they, they call it Hell's Hole. And it's just a huge drop-off into a hole, and it sucks you back under. And uh, right after that last rapid, then there's a, a bridge, and it's got pylons that come down into the river, And it's very dangerous because if you have to come out of your boat on that last rapid, you could possibly run into one of those pylons and the water would just stick you there. Uh, In fact, they had a a, a television rescue film there one time where they picked a guy out of there who was stuck against a pylon. So as a result of that, just beyond that last rapid, there are many guys standing on the shore with ropes and they throw ropes to you if you come out of your boat to bring you to the side. But the key thing you learn if you're throwing a rope in a whitewater river is to make sure that your feet are firmly planted on the side as you throw the rope. Because if you've got a rope and you jump in, you don't have any advantage then. And see, the same is true spiritually. If I'm going to reach out and help people who are drowning 
in the river of sin, I have to have my feet securely planted on my own salvation. See, if I'm not sure if I'm saved, I'm not going to have a whole lot of energy to help you. People sometimes ask me if I believe in eternal security. And I'm always careful to answer that question because I want to understand what you mean by eternal security. But I will say this. I do not believe in eternal insecurity. And one of the problems people have is that the Bible talks about salvation in three aspects. It talks about past, present, and future salvation. It talks about past salvation in that we're saved from the penalty of sin. It talks about present salvation in that we're saved from the power of sin. And it talks about future salvation in that we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And Scripture very clearly defines our security in all three of those areas. It very clearly defines our security in relation to the past, that we're saved from the penalty of sin. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I love the verse that John writes in 1 John 5.13. He says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you'll hope, not that you'll wish, not that you'll wonder, but that you will know. God wants you to know that you have eternal life. But he also mentions the second aspect, the present aspect, being saved from the power of sin. Let me quote you a verse from Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Christ's death saved us from the penalty of sin. His life within us, day to day, is saving us from the power and the mastery of sin. And that's something Paul is certain about because he says, if he saved us while we were enemies from the penalty of sin, how much more will he save us from the power of sin now that we are his children? He put it this way in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He said, for I am confident of this very thing. What? I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And not only that, but he talks about our security in terms of our future as well, that we will be saved from the presence of sin. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. We know it. If you're a Christian, you're secure. And you can say with Paul in Romans 8:38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are secure, and God wants you to know that. And that is the helmet of our salvation. I was at a camp one time, and uh, I was a counselor of a cabin, and I came back to the cabin during the, one of the services to get something. I came in, and I found one of the campers, a teenager about 17, sitting on his bunk, and he was just weeping. And so I sat down beside him, and I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, I was sitting down there in the service, and I suddenly had a thought a doubt came into my mind as to whether God even existed or not. And he said, if I could have a thought like that, how could I be a Christian? And I explained to him that those doubts come from the enemy, that they're not that uncommon. 
And I sat down with him and we opened the scriptures together and we went over some of the verses that I just shared with you. And he left from there. And I remember coming back that night and it was curfew time and, and he wasn't in the cabin. He's the only one missing. So I thought, where is this guy? So I went out looking for him. There was only one lighted place in the whole campground. It was the pavilion. He was sitting down there reading his Bible. You see, he had found where doubts are erased in the Word of God. He got his helmet on. Sixth piece of armor is the sword of the Spirit. That's at the end of verse 17. The soldier had two kinds of swords. One was the broad sword that we mentioned already. The other was the common sword, which he carried in a scabbard on his belt. It was the principal weapon that he used in hand-to-hand combat. And that's the word, it's the Greek word makara that Paul uses here. Now Paul tells us that our sword is the word of God. Now the sword was used for both a defensive weapon and an offensive weapon. But unlike the shield, which sort of protected in a general way, the sword was used as a defensive weapon only if you used it precisely and skillfully. You had to put it right in the spot where the enemy was thrusting at you which is exactly what Jesus did if you read about his temptation in Matthew chapter 4. When Satan came to him, it says Jesus quoted Scripture three times. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. But he doesn't just quote any Scripture. If you look at what he quotes, he quotes specific Scriptures that speak to the specific temptation that he was facing. Which is interesting because in our passage, Ephesians chapter 6... The word here, word of God, is not the word logos, which means the general statements of Scripture. It's the Greek word rhema, which means individual words or particular statements. And so what he's saying is, when temptation comes, we need to know the word of God well enough that we can pull out a specific word for a specific temptation. See, a lot of people get in trouble and they quote the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again think that'll help them. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about having a knowledge of the Scripture, being versed in the Scripture well enough that we can pull out verses that we need in particular temptations as they face us. What I like about the temptation in the wilderness is if you check out the verses that Jesus quotes there, he quotes one from Deuteronomy 8 and two verses from Deuteronomy 6, which means he got all those verses out of three chapters together in the Old Testament. I like to think that those were verses that Jesus read that morning as he prepared for the day. And that God had armed him with those things ahead of time because those were the very temptations he would face as he went out into that day. And he was ready for them. But not only is the sword a defensive weapon, it's also an offensive weapon. It's the only piece of offensive armor that's listed here. It not only defends us against the attacks of Satan, but it pierces others' hearts and destroys the lies of the devil. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We have a sword and it's an offensive weapon. Remember Peter. Peter tried to use a physical sword in the garden. He didn't get very far. All he got was an ear. A little later on the day of Pentecost, he uses the sword of the spirit And it tells us in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 that 3,000 people were pierced to the heart. That's the Word of God. 
That's the sword that we have. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, a verse that's probably familiar to you, says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That word, word, is also rhema. It's a specific word that I use the word of God specifically on somebody's life, and it impacts them. It pierces to their heart. You know, the more you use a physical sword, the duller it becomes. But the more you use your spiritual sword, the sharper it becomes. Let me just say a a couple of things about this sword of the Spirit. One is, you don't have to defend your sword. You know, that's one of Satan's tactics today is to say, well, I don't believe that's the Word of God. Well, let me ask you this. If you had your sword out and, and your enemy said, well, I don't believe that's a sword, would you lay it down? Or would you stab him? See, just because somebody tells me this is not the Word of God doesn't mean this is not the Word of God. Just because somebody says they don't believe in my sword doesn't make it any less a sword. It's still my weapon. It's the only weapon I have as an offensive weapon, and I need to be using it. And let me say something else about this. You know, I've found personally that the hardest thing to do in a time of temptation is to get your Bible open. That's why I think what he's talking about here is that we have to have the Word of God in our hearts. We have to meditate on it. We have to memorize it. In fact, he says here it is the sword of the Spirit, which tells me that the Spirit takes the truth that I have on my heart in a time of temptation. He brings up those verses that I need, and I'm able to use them against the enemy as he attacks me. But he won't be able to do that unless in those times of quiet, I am meditating on and memorizing the Word of God. H.P. Barker tells the story of a day when he was looking into the flower garden. And he said he saw three things. Number one, he said he saw a beautiful butterfly. And it would light on a flower for just a brief second, and then it would flutter to another flower and land there just briefly. Then it would flutter away to another flower. And he said it touched as many blossoms as it could, but derived absolutely no benefit from them second thing he saw in the garden was a botanist. He leaned over a flower, he took out a magnifying glass, he studied it for a long time, and then he would write notes in his notebook. And he did that for several hours, and then finally he closed his notebook, put it under his arm, and walked away. And then he said he saw a third thing in the flower garden. He said, I saw a bee. The bee would land on a flower, and it would sink down deep and extract all the nectar and pollen it could get. It went in empty every time, and it came out full. Some Christians are like the butterfly. They flit from Bible study to Bible study, sermon to sermon, and get very little from anything. Some Christians are like the botanist. They study Scripture carefully. They take copious notes. They gain much information and very little truth. But others are like the bee. They go to the Bible to be taught by God with a hunger to know Him better and to love Him more. And like the bee, they never go away empty. See, that's what it is to take up the sword of the Spirit. 